Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Acts chapter 5, purity before power. Now we started um, Acts chapter 5, actually it was Acts chapter 4. We were kind of going through Acts chapter 4 and uh, and then we moved into chapter 5 and we got through the first 11 verses, or actually first 12 verses of chapter, uh, of chapter 5. And uh, so, but I want to back up a little bit because what I studied this week it just it kind of fits with what we talked about last week, and so we're going to kind of back up just a, just a few moments, and uh, may, hopefully as I go through, you'll understand why. But first of all, before what happened before what we, what we just read this morning? Well, before in Acts chapter four verse thirty-two, it says this: Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And we went into detail talking about that. Um, if you weren't here, it, the message is up on the internet. You can catch it. But what happened, what we saw last week, was the church just exponentially growing from, Pente from that first Pentecost. And it says that they had one heart and one soul. So they had great unity. They had great empathy for one another, caring for one another. In verse 33 of chapter 4, it says, And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So, listen, they had great unity. They had great empathy. You know, they're caring for one another. They have great power. I mean, the gospel is just spreading like wildfire. And great grace was upon them. And then when we get to the end of chapter 4, verse 36, it says, And Joseph, who was also known, uh, named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. What an amazing thing. God moved mightily on this guy. He was a Levite. God moved mightily on his heart, and he sold his property, his possessions, and he, uh, he ended up bringing it and just laying it at the apostles' feet. And uh, what an amazing thing. That was before. Then, then we picked it up last week in chapter 5, verse 1. But... A certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds. His wife also, being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we have this great stuff that's occurring in chapter 4, and chapter 5 starts with, but... I hate it when scriptures, unless it says, but God, because usually when it says, but God, then, you know, something's terrible going on, but God shows up. And I don't know if you've ever had that in your own life, you know, situation going on. We were out on the lake yesterday and, and uh, I uh, flooded out my, my outboard motor to start out. So I'm like, great. But fortunately, I had a trolling motor. So we trolled the whole lake that we were at and I mean trolled for hours. That interstate battery held up pretty good. I was impressed with it. Uh, but... Towards the end, we were starting to head back to the shore, and I see this one landmark. Is this one house that I'm like, okay, I know that's we're kind of to the side of it. So I'm just watching it, and the wind was picking up, and I'm like, you know, we've been here for about a half hour, and I haven't seen that thing moving. 
And I'm looking over and that little motor is going, you know, it's just, I'm like, oh, shoot. I'm praying, Lord, this is not good. Uh, you know, because we were in the middle of this lake. I'm like, Lord, please, please, you know, help us. And I thought, well, I'm going to try that motor one more time. I popped down and I fired right up. Praise God, you know, it's like, thank you, Lord. But, you know, those are situations in our lives, right? There's something, something drastic happens, but God shows up. That's the good things. Well, here in chapter 4, we read about all these good things occurring, but something is not so good. That word but is the Greek word day, D-E. And it's a particle, particle, excuse me, standing after one or two words in a clause strictly adversative, but more frequently denoting transition or conversion and serving to introduce something else, whether opposed to what precedes or simply continuative or explanatory. In this case, it opposed what precedes. We hear all this great stuff that's going on with the church. They've got power. They've got unity. They've got all these things going on. But then this happened. Chapter 5. What happened? Ananias and Sapphira. And I am no doubt the reason why we're told about Barnabas and then about Ananias and Sapphira, my guess, and I don't think I'm far off, is that they saw what uh, Barnabas did They probably, I mean, we're reading about it, so it wasn't like nobody knew about it. It wasn't like an anonymous donation. It was a donation that occurred. So everybody's like, man, look at how the Lord's moved on Barnabas. How wonderful. Praise the Lord. And here's these two people sitting there, and they were a little bit envious. They were a little prideful. Man, I wish someone would praise me for what I'm doing. And so wanting to play the part rather than be the part, we see the first case of hypocrisy in the church. What is hypocrisy? As we talked about last week, it's basically a stage actor, a pretender. And you know, as we read, and I talked about this last week with Ananias and Sapphira, you know, if you go to your, and you, it might even say this in your Bibles, I don't know if it does, but you might go to a commentary on, on the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and it'll say the discipline of Ananias and Sapphira. I beg to differ. This wasn't discipline. This was God's judgment. Now, it wasn't a judgment for damnation because I honestly, genuinely believe that they were believers. I do. Because and, uh, Peter says, but how could you lie to the Holy Spirit? Well, if you don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, how could you lie to the Holy Spirit? So I believe that they were believers. So this wasn't, I'm not talking about a damnation that they're in hell now. But listen, what happened, and we talked about this last week, Satan's plan A was a frontal attack on the church. You know, all these people are getting saved, all these wonderful things are happening, and so they arrested Peter and John, and they threatened them, and that didn't work. That was plan A. So Satan had plan B. Plan B here was to, instead of a frontal attack, to attack from within. That was Satan's attack. And the Lord dealt with Satan's plan B and he literally took them out. He literally killed them. You can't, you can't paint this like, you know, God disciplined Adam, uh, uh, Ananias. And no, he killed them. They died. Pretty serious. Why would the Lord God do that? Well, first of all, it's his business. I, you know, I can't presume to say, well, you know, this is why God did it. I, I don't know. But I can tell you a few things. First of all, Paul wrote this later on 
in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, he said, and he's speaking to the Ephesian elders. He says, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Each and every person that's here in this church this morning was purchased, blood bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. Man, you might think, oh, nobody likes me, or I'm, not, you know, I'm, I'm worthless, I got no value, you know, I'm so insignificant. You are very significant because Jesus died for you. He laid down his life for you. So, the Lord God loves his church. He cares about it. This was a fledgling church. It's the first incident of the church in the New Testament. And Ananias and Sapphira's heart condition, and I'll call it sin, their sin of hypocrisy polluted that one heart and one soul that we just read in chapter 4. You know, God dealing with sin in the camp, it's not unusual. It's not without precedent. Before the children of Israel could enter the promised land, an entire generation of grumblers and complainers had to literally die before they could even enter into the promised land. They had to die. God waited till they, that whole generation save uh, Joshua and Caleb. They all died. Before the children of Israel could have victory over the Canaanites, once they got into the promised land, the children of Israel had, de- had to deal with the sin of Achan at the battle of Jericho. I, I just want to read a little bit to you. It's out of Joshua chapter 6. And in verse 18, God has commanded... Uh, Aaron, or excuse me, Joshua, to lead the children of Israel. They're going to go around the city of Jericho, which has got, it's fortified. They're going to walk around it six days, and on the seventh day, God's going to destroy the city. And you know the story. The walls came tumbling down, and the armies of the children of Israel were to go in and, and take the place. But this is what the Lord had told Joshua. In Joshua 6.18 says, And you by all means abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. That was the warning. While they obeyed the Lord, they went around the city six times. The seventh time uh, on that seventh day, man, they, they, they went around seven times. And then they blew the trumpets. The walls came down. They went in there and they destroyed the inhabitants, except for, of course, Rahab and her family. But Jericho was taken. And in verse 27 of chapter 6, it says, So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout all the country. This is just like we look at the church here that I was just reading about. There's power. There's a witness. There's people getting saved. It's an amazing testimony. Well, the, all the other cities were afraid of the children of Israel afraid of the Lord God of the children of Israel. And here's this but again in Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. But, but the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things, So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Now, the only thing is, nobody knew about it. Obviously, you know, Achan knew about it, maybe his wife, maybe his kids, but nobody else knew about it. And so they go to the next city. Man, God has done an amazing thing. They've got power, the power of God, you know, going before them. 
And they go to take, the next city was the city of Ai, or Ai, but it's pronounced Ai. And what happened? They were horribly, miserably, embarrassingly defeated before the men of Ai. They were actually chased by the men of Ai. What went wrong? Well, Joshua didn't know what went wrong. It says that he tore his clothes, fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Joshua's like, what happened? Lord God, you said you were going to go before us and we're going to have all this great power. What happened? And in Joshua chapter 7, verse 10, it says, So the Lord said to Joshua, Get up! Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things, and have both stolen and deceived, and they have also put it among their own stuff. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turn their backs before their enemies, because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed from among you. Get up, sanctify the people, and say, Sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, because thus says the Lord God of Israel, There is an accursed thing in your midst. And then you listen to the heart of God. It's like he's just like grieved. Oh, Israel, you cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. Because they hadn't dealt with sin. They were powerless. They had to deal with the sin of Achan. And if you know the story, they took Achan and his family, children, everybody that was of his family, and they stoned them in the wilderness. Listen, you and I personally, you and I personally as believers, and we as a church, we can't stand before our enemies. We cannot have the power of the testimony of the church of Acts if we do not address the sin that's in our own hearts. Are we hypocrites? Are we playing the part, and I'll give you an example, are we playing the part or the act of loving one another at Calvary Chapel, Rochester. But inwardly, we're seething. You know, maybe we've got something, we're angry with someone, or we've got unforgiveness in our hearts, or we're ignoring people and avoiding others. And I, I, I had to say this, I've witnessed this. People ignoring people in church. We're the family. We're a small family here. It becomes very obvious. Avoiding someone or having issues with someone but we're playing the part of acting one another. That's hypocrisy. Listen, are we playing the act of surrendering all to Jesus? I'm glad we didn't sing that song this morning. <laughs> I surrender all. In fact, we were playing it on the way up here. I'm thinking, man, how many times have I sung that when I don't know that I really surrendered all? But how many times are we playing the act of surrendering all to Jesus while inwardly there's some secret sin we're hanging on to? That we're dealing with, we hope nobody knows about it, but it's there. What would have been the remedy for Ananias and Sapphira? What, what would have changed in their hearts? What would have changed the situation to where God wouldn't have taken them out? Paul said this to the Romans. He said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. 
And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It's in our minds. Well, well, how do we renew our minds? I mean, it sounds great, but how do we do that? I think there's a key in what Peter said to Ananias in chapter 5. Peter confronted Ananias, and he said this, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now, I don't believe that's... I'm not saying Satan was possessed by the devil. Christians, you cannot be possessed by the devil. I'll just get that out there. But Satan had filled their hearts. Their own flesh had given over. They They were dealing with envy. They were dealing with pride. They wanted recognition. And so, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? What do we do? Well, Ephesians 5, 18. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. That's the solution to renewing your mind, is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And, by the way, that word, and we studied it not too long ago, being filled with the Holy Spirit. The verb tenses keep being filled with the Holy Spirit. Daily. Moment by moment, if necessary. Keep being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's continually surrendering your heart to him on a regular basis. So backing up to our story here in Acts, before the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul that had great unity, great empathy, great power, and great grace was upon them all. And then God's removal of the pollution the pollution in the church of pride, envy, and hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira. Because if you read this, you see all this great power, all these miracle things are happening. What a great testimony. And then you get this little segment about Ananias and Sapphira. And now, look at verse 12. And once more, we're talking about the church having power again. It says, and through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Did you catch that? After that sin was dealt with, the church once more has power. They all once more are together with one heart and one soul. What a testimony. Verse 13, yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly, and believers uh, were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So those that wanted to, were tempted to play the part, maybe even to feign a relationship with the Lord, man, they didn't dare to join them, right? It's like, man, I don't want, I don't want to be found out. I don't want to get busted. I don't want to die, you know, before Peter. Listen, the judgment of the Lord, it had a purifying effect on the church. I think that's one of the things that we're lacking. I'm not talking just we, but we as believers today, we're lacking the fear of the Lord. But that purifying, genuine faith and love and fellowship for God and for each other, with the fear attached to it, it was still attractive. I mean, people are still coming because it's authentic and it's true. And it says believers were increasingly added to the Lord, not to the apostles, by the way, They weren't added to the apostles. They weren't added to this church or that church. They were added to the Lord. Verse 15. 
so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. What an amazing thing. Now it doesn't say that Peter's shadow healed them, but those people sure thought that, they, that it would. Listen, later on in the book of Acts, it says this about Paul. Acts 19, verse 11 and 12, it says, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from, the body, from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Unusual miracles. And they give us this example. This also kind of reminds me of a story in the Gospels where the woman of, with the flow of blood for 12 years, well, she, she said, if I can just touch the garments of Jesus, if I can just touch his garments, I'll be healed. It also reminds me in the Old Testament when Elisha told Naaman the Syrian, the guy who had leprosy, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored to you and you shall be clean. This guy was ticked off. He's like, why do I have to go to the muddy Jordan, man? The, 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 the rivers in Damascus, are, man, they're clear. They're, stream, they're spring-fed. They're, 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 they're better than Jewish you know, rivers. But he went there, washed seven times, and he was healed. What's my point? This is my point. I don't think there was anything magical or anointed in Peter's shadow. I really don't. I don't think there was anything magical or anointed in Paul's handkerchiefs or even the waters of the Jordan River or, dare I say, even Christ's garment. It wasn't like his garments were magical because Jesus wore them. These were just vehicles through which a per person puts faith in God's power to heal. It was just a vehicle. There was nothing special about them per se by themselves. In fact, when we get to the book of James at some point, <laughs> James chapter 5, verse 14 says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the sick. It's not the old, holy, excuse me, it's not the holy oil that heals, it's the prayer of faith that heals. Paul told Timothy, a young Timothy, a young pastor, in 1 Timothy 4.14, he said, Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. I'm one of the elders here at Calvary Chapel, Rochester. And I can tell you, these hands, oh, I wish they were, but these hands are not holy and anointed. Okay, it's not like, these hands, you know, I can, it's not, okay? It's not. I'm just, I'm just a plain guy who's had a call in my life. I'm not even a pastor, I'm a man who pastors. I mean, that's the way i got to look at my, at my ministry. These are all points of contact. I know a lot of people call it points of contact. I prefer to call them vehicles of faith. I just, to me, it just sounds better because a vehicle takes you somewhere. And, and I think these things just took them to a greater faith in Christ Jesus. Now, the problem is, in some churches, I don't know if there's churches that have like shadow ministries, but you know, the handkerchiefs, the holy handkerchiefs, you know, all these different things. People idolize the vehicle 
or point of contact. That's why you have some guy on stage with his anointed jacket waving it, and all these people are falling down. You know, what a. Listen, there's nothing anointed about that jacket. There's nothing. Or maybe even the person. I don't know. I'm not going to go there, but, anyways. Listen, don't idolize the vehicle or point of contact. Worship Jesus. Worship the Lord. You guys ever heard of the term Nahushtan? Anybody? Okay, that's awesome. You'll, you'll recognize it, though. Nehushtan. I'll, I'll tell you what it was in a moment. But back when the children of Israel were in the wilderness, and they were dealing with these grumblers and complainers, God got angry, and God sent a bunch of fiery serpents. They bit those people, and they started dying. And Moses is watching, man. People are dying left and right. Thousands are dying. And he calls out to the Lord, and the Lord says, Hey, I tell you what you do. You cast a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And whoever looks at that bronze serpent on that pole, they'll be healed. And if, it's a great Bible study, but that bronze serpent on the pole, I know it's a symbol of our medical community today, but what that really is is a picture of Jesus Christ. Because bronze is the picture of judgment. Jesus Christ who knew no sin, became sin. He was that fiery serpent on the pole. Became sin for us so that we wouldn't be judged, so that we wouldn't be damned. Well, Nehushtan, you don't hear about that bronze serpent until many, many, many years later, many generations later. In 2 Kings chapter 18, in the children of Israel, they've adopted the idolatry of the lands around them. They're no different than the people around them. And the Lord raises up kings. He'll raise up judges. I know the women's Bible study, that's, what, that's pretty much the story of judges, you know. Rebellion, a deliverer. Rebellion, deliverer. Rebellion, deliverer. Well, in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 4, this is what Hezekiah, Hezekiah was one of the good kings of Judah. It says, He removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image and broken pieces of the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. Now you know what Nehushtan is. They idolized this point of contact, this vehicle of faith. That became more important than the God who delivered them, who spared their lives. It's funny. I mean, it's not funny, but I'm, I'm, I, I, I guess say it's funny. It's kind of ironic. Maybe that's a better word. As I'm preparing this message, I'm watching TV, and I haven't seen this. was the first time I ever saw it. Even today, oops, there's the bronze serpent. I got behind myself here in my pictures. You can look at that. We'll look at it for a few minutes. All right, let's move on. Even today... You can send away to a German faith healer and get miracle spring water today. You can do that. You know, it's funny. So I went to this guy's website, and you can request this miracle spring water. And you know when you get to the it says, don't drink the water. <laughs> Basically, it says that. It's got, they got this disclaimer, don't drink it. <laughs> you know, it's miracle water, but don't drink it. <laughs> guy doesn't want a lawsuit, I guess. You know, so I, I don't want to belabor this. But one last point I want to make on this. Ananias and Sapphira, that was a special judgment. I mean, aren't you thankful that that's not the, the rule and practice of faith today? Your pastor probably wouldn't be here in the pulpit. 
Half of this congregation, half of the churches in Rochester would be empty the one time anybody was hypocritical of anything. We'd be gone. We'd all be out of here. Well, maybe not all. My wife would be here. She's, no, just kidding. You know, people, there's no, seriously, but they're, they're, you know, most of us, if not all of us, wouldn't even be here. That was a special judgment. And I believe what we're reading here with Peter, these were special miracles. Now, that's not to say that the Lord can't or won't use points of contact for special miracles. I hate to put God in a box. In fact, I refuse to put God in a box. I won't say, well, the Lord doesn't do that anymore. No, I believe God still does miraculous healings. But I believe in these cases, with these points of contact, it's the exception and not the norm. This is my take. This is not, you can, you can believe differently if you want, that's fine. But I believe that's not the norm. I think it's the exception. Well, let's continue on here. Verse 17. Then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation, and laid their hands on the apostles, and put them in the common prison. The Sadducees, they were filled with indignation. We talked about, about this a couple weeks ago. First of all, Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, in angels or demons. And here the apostles are preaching about the resurrected Jesus Christ. Here people are being healed, they're being delivered from demonic possession. And so they're like, whoa, this is like rocking their world. Because they didn't believe that that's possible. They were also jealous and envious of the people's attraction to the apostles. Thousands of people are now listening to them and are now following the apostles. And then on top of that, they had already threatened Peter and John to try to silence them, and that didn't work. So it's kind of an understatement. They were filled with indignation, and they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. Verse 19, but at night... An angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. That's kind of an interesting way to describe it. This life. What is this life? Well, you know, he's, the Sadducees were the guys that were all riled up and had arrested. Most of the priests were Sadducees, by the way. Was it this life? Is it referring to the eternal life that the Sadducees didn't believe in? Quite Quite possibly. Or could it be the life of the believer here and now? I think actually both. Peter wrote this, 2 Peter 1.3, As his divine power is given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. This life, it could be talking about the life that we have in Christ right now. It could be talking about eternal life. I think it's both. So the apostles were set free, and what were they told? Hey, go back to the temple and keep teaching. Don't stop, just keep teaching. You and I, we have been set free not to talk about the Vikings. It's okay if you do. Not to talk about those Democrats. Not to talk about whatever, you, whatever your pet hobby is, whatever your pet peeve is, whatever. That's not what we've been set free to. We've been set free to speak to people this life in Christ, both now and eternal life. I like this quote from Dr. Thompson Kerr. It says, We're not to preach sociology, but salvation. Not economics, but evangelism. Not reform, but redemption. Not culture, 
but conversion. Not progress, but pardon. Not a social order, but a new birth. Not revelation, but regeneration. Not renovation, but revival. Excuse me, not revolution, but regeneration. Not renovation, but revival. Not resuscitation, but resurrection. Not a new organization, but a new creation. Not democracy, but the gospel. Not civilization, but Christ. We are ambassadors, not diplomats. I love that. I love that. You have been set free to go share the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've been set free. We've all been commissioned. So verse 21, And when the apostles, when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. You know what they didn't do? They didn't go, you know what? That's awesome, man. Let's go out and hang out and let's go do this or that. And, you know, maybe when we retire, we'll go, we'll go, we'll go back to the temple or when it, you know, when it works. No, man, the next day, early in the morning, they're obedient. They're there at the temple preaching and teaching Jesus Christ. But the high priest and those who came uh, and those Excuse me. And the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the high priest... The captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these things. They wondered what the outcome would be. It's like, what's the next thing that's going to... I mean, there's guys who are like, whoa, what's going on here? Verse 25. So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence. They didn't lay hands on them that time. They brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you to teach in this, not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. They won't even mention the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This man. You know, it's kind of funny. They're saying, you're, you're heaping this guilt on us about this man. And yet... In Matthew chapter 27, verse 25, when Pilate's like, I don't see anything wrong with this. And then the crowds, and they were stirred up by the, by the priests to crucify him. They said this, his blood be upon us and our children. They, they, they're the ones that made that claim. And now they're being called on the carpet. They're like, don't place that on us. Verse 29 but Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to the right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. So if you look at this message that Peter gave, he says what? We ought to obey God rather than men. That's the exact same message, basically, that they said in chapter 5 when they arrested the first time. 
He said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than, than to God, you judge. They're saying the same thing. They said, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. If you go to chapter 3, that's the exact same thing they said there. Him God has exalted to the right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. That is repeated in chapter 2 and chapter 4. And we are his witnesses to these things. In chapter 4, verse 20, that's the exact same response. What I'm trying to get across, the apostles were not diplomats. You know, a diplomat or a politician, they change their story based on who they're around or based on the circumstances. It's funny how certain, now there's all these politicians that are hard on crime. When this past summer, they were like, defund the peace, please. And now they're hard on crime. Why? Because an election's coming up. The apostles weren't diplomats. They weren't politicians, and they weren't progressives. The message didn't change just because, you know, there's a certain group of people, we can't offend these people. The message didn't change. It's the same message. You and I, we are ambassadors for Christ. And we have that exact same message that the apostles had 2,000 plus years ago. It's the same message. It's the same gospel. Man, Franklin Graham, I'm like, wow, he's just, he's just getting right into it right there. I mean, it's the same message. When we get to verse 34, though, then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee, so he's not a Sadducee, he's a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you do or what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Theudas, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but Theudas rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing." But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. So if you see this picture, there's these Pharisees, they're fuming, they're gnashing their teeth, they're like, we've got to take, take them out and kill these guys. How are we going to get rid of them like we got rid of Jesus of Nazareth? And then this guy by the name of Gamaliel spoke, and he was a respected Pharisee. Josephus, the historian, even talks about Gamaliel. We find out in scriptures that he also tutored Saul of Tarsus, who later became the Apostle Paul. And when we're reading this, it almost seems like, wow, God intervened, which he did intervene, but here's this voice of reason, this wise Pharisee named Gamaliel. We think, man, that's awesome that he spoke up. His middle-of-the-road approach his, hey, let's just don't do anything. We might be fighting against it. Let's wait and see what happens. That was more dangerous to him personally than to those Pharisees that wanted to kill Peter and John. It was more dangerous. Why do I say that? Because in Acts chapter 6, we read that a great many priests became obedient to the faith. 
probably some of those same priests that wanted to kill Peter and John, they later became born-again believers in Jesus Christ. We don't read anything about Gamaliel. And he was such a prominent, he was venerated. And his grandson, Gamaliel, the, I don't know if he's the second or the third, was venerated too. He was, uh, he tutored Paul. And my point is, if he had became a born-again believer, if he had been one of those great many priests, undoubtedly, Paul would have mentioned it. I'm sure he would have. We would have read about it in the Gospels, in the book of Acts. But if you look at Gamaliel's comments, he compared Jesus with two revolutionary Jews who led minor rebellions. And the way he described them, Theudas, he claimed to be somebody. Judas of Galilee drew away many people after him. In other words, what Gamaliel was saying is Jesus is just like these other two revolutionary guys, making false claims, and they're in it for their own attention. And then he says... If this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. Listen, if he really cared, he would dig into the scriptures to become a believer himself. He would have, if he cared. But the problem was, his attitude toward Christ, it wasn't opposition, it was indifference. It was indifference. And that's dangerous. It was from among the hostile priests that many became believers in Jesus Christ. So we look at that, and I'm sure God used it to deliver Peter and John and the other apostles that were arrested with them. But sometimes we go, man, Gamaliel, man, he's so close to the kingdom. No, he's, he's far away because he's indifferent to the gospel. You and I share the gospel. If somebody gets in your face, I, I don't like when people, you know, they get angry or they get upset. Well, I've shared the gospel with people. That got, you know, I, I don't like that. But sometimes the people that are the, that are the hostile ones are the ones that they're, con they're getting convicted by the Holy Spirit. Man, just keep planting those seeds. You know, you never know. Verse 40. And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Man, they considered it an honor to be beaten for Christ Jesus. And so if you look at before, man, great power, great unity, great empathy towards one another, great witness, great grace. And then we have the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. And God dealt with it in a very harsh way. But then we see the church again. They're powerful. They're effective. They're attractive. Even though there's holiness, there's attractiveness to it, and the church is advancing. And you and I today, we are the recipients of that powerful, effective witness of the apostles of their unshakable faith. And praise God that he didn't allow that church to become so polluted there in the beginning that they became useless. That the enemy no longer wanted to, wanted to attack them. Because why? Because... They're not, they're not doing anything for the kingdom. 
I want to close with this. Back in verse 12, talking about the miracles of the apostles, it says, through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. That word through is a Greek word, dia. And it's a primary preposition denoting the channel of an act. Through the hands of the apostles, many signs. They were just the channels of what the Holy Spirit was doing. And people were coming to faith. That was a powerful church. It was an effective church. It was a growing church. For you and I, if we want to be channels of the living water, the Holy Spirit, we have to make sure that our stream is not polluting that we're not polluting the stream, I should say. I want to close with these two verses that I read earlier. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It starts in our minds. We have to have a renewing in our minds. And Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Let's go ahead and go, Lord, in prayer.